It's so good to be back. My wife, Kathy, and daughter, Ruthie, and I enjoyed our time visiting our son and daughter-in-law, Ben and Maddie, back in Michigan. And we're so thankful for Mark Anderson and Isaac Harm, who stood in the pulpit ministry while we were away. But I'm very eager to get back into Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I'm eager to give thanks to the Lord for his blessing in the birth of little Asha Jade to Peter and Lily Gruba. Let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you for birthing this precious little child to Peter and Lily. Bless little Asha as she grows in the grace and knowledge of Christ and save her at a young age. Bless, I pray, all the little ones among us as they hear the word of God commended to them by parents and by teachers who love them and love the outcome of their faith very much. I pray now that your spirit would dwell with them and with us and within the locations of every person watching by live stream, that this word would come alive and do its mighty awakening work in everyone who gives it attention. Awaken me, awaken us, awaken churches around the world and around the Duluth Superior area who are asleep and near to death. Have awakening grace poured out upon us and within us even today. Steal and protect us, ensure and strengthen us so that no deadening effects lull us to sleep in the months and years ahead. No matter who's in leadership at this church, no matter who stands behind this pulpit, no matter who makes up the membership, would you cause your name to perpetually be glorified from the landing until you return and then glorified without limit and without end in your heaven forever. To that end, use this broken sermon of mine and a precious, perfect passage of yours in marvelous ways in our lives. Through Christ, I pray. Amen. Nearly every believer in Jesus Christ would agree with me today, as many in times past, that the greatest need of the church is revival. Because the greatest need of the lost is salvation, and the greatest need in all reality is to see and savor the glory of God. Revival is how God moves through history to achieve his glory by means of a church awakened. One of my heroes, Jonathan Edwards, pastored in New England 280 years ago. He said this, from the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption and its effect has been carried out by remarkable communications of the Spirit of God. Though there be a more constant influence of God's Spirit always in some degree attending His ordinances, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done toward carrying out His work always have been remarkable effusions at special seasons of mercy. In other words, revival is what God is always doing. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in London in the mid-20th century, said a revival is a miracle, something that can only be explained as the direct intervention of God. Men can produce evangelistic campaigns, but they cannot and never have produced a revival. In a recent podcast on revival, I was reminded of another wise and trusted church historian. His name is Ian Murray. He said, revival is a work of the Spirit of God where extraordinary blessings come through ordinary means. 
And he's contrasting it there with the attempt to use man-centered means to bring down those extraordinary blessings. No, no, Murray is saying, and I'm agreeing and commending to you what the Bible teaches, that it's the normal means of preaching and of prayer and of witnessing and of missions and of singing and of the Lord's table and of fellowship with the body of Christ by which the Lord grants his extraordinary revival blessings. Revival is not something we do. It's not from earth. It's where the Spirit of God overwhelms and overtakes you, and all of a sudden you feel in your heart this overwhelming desire to be rid of your sin. You start to see your sin and you say, oh, I hate that about me. And I want that, I want that removed from my life. God, would you take it from me? It's so ugly to me, even though I once was so tempted by it. I want you, God. I want all that you are for me in Jesus Christ. I want all your spirit, all your power, all your presence, all your gifts, all your fruits, all your word. Revival is a work that God grants to his church in a powerful, intense, localized, and often accelerated way. One of my favorite preachers Sinclair Ferguson talks about as a young boy, 14 years of age, he was talking with an elderly Scottish man in his home uh, village in the Highlands of Scotland. And the elderly man at that time says, I remember when the men of this church would come on a Sunday morning and hear a message calling for revival. And they were so struck with how revival hadn't touched this community in years and years that they, they, forego, they forewent the, the noon meal and they laid out in the grass until all the grass outside the church building was black with their clothing. Men shoulder to shoulder, all wearing black, hats off, lying prostrate on the ground, covering the lawn, asking God to come. And then Ferguson says, and I waited, and the old man looked at me with a twinkle in his eye and said, and God came. And I'm thinking, where's the grass? I'll lay down. The way the Lord Jesus Christ comes to dead churches and to dead souls is in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to give my spirit to the dead. It's a remarkable thing here in Revelation 3, 1 through 6 that Paul just read that the Lord doesn't just walk right past this church. It's a cemetery, he says. It's dead. You'd think he'd just walk right past it and say, okay, that was a dud. Give me another one to light. He doesn't walk past Sardis. He doesn't walk past this church wherever deadness might rear its head. He doesn't walk past you and me if you feel the least bit dead before him. He doesn't walk past the other churches that you and I might have written off because they chose to twist the vocabulary and grammar of being awakened into woke, which is a prelude to spiritual death. Take a warning. And you and I might have said, that's not the church for me. That's too bad. Cluck our tongues and walk past. But the Lord doesn't do that. In Sardis here, he stops and talks with them. He says, you are dead. Wake up. Only he has the power to wake the dead with his word. They had in the church at Sardis a form of godliness, but they lacked the power thereof. You see, in Sardis, everything was in order. Everything was well-mannered. 
Everybody was well-behaved. Everybody knew how to speak appropriately and politely in public. No one ever spoke honestly and directly and openly, only in platitudes and euphemisms. And above all, no one spoke of the bloody cross, the empty tomb, or the scarred Savior risen and reigning in power over a sin-torn, hell-bent, wrath-deserving world. When Jesus Christ speaks by his word, his angelic messengers come to the church and they say, wake up because you're dead. Not dig your grave because you're dead, but wake up because you're dead. Seek the things above. Preach the gospel of grace. Pray for miracles of the new birth and all lesser miracles which point to the new birth. By faith, be disciples who make disciples, who observe all that I have commanded. And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. How, Lord, will you be with us? By my spirit. Crucial, essential, and vital to every healthy, awakened, revived church is the indwelling, heart-transforming, eye-opening, love-depositing, gift-giving, fruit-bearing presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And boy, did I have fun writing that sentence. Where do I see that? I see it in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Look at it with me. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You can remember from Revelation 1 that Christ in the vision John is given there and we're given, he is holding the seven spirits, which is a metaphor for the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the seven stars, which are messengers, angelic messengers sent to the seven churches. His hand, his hand is holding the Holy Spirit and from him comes the Holy Spirit to create, awaken, and revive these churches. Even when they've got one foot in the grave, he says, I'm going to come to you, talk to you, and when I talk to you, my words are going to create what I command. Wake up, and you're going to wake up. I wake the dead with my words. What Christ highlights of himself to the church in Sardis is that he's the one with the Holy Spirit and what they need most is the Holy Spirit. That's why it says he's the one with the seven spirits of God and holding the seven stars. He means, and he says this at the very end, at the end of verse 6, let the Spirit, uh, whoever has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's because the Spirit is talking not just to Sardis. He's not just talking to Sardis. He's not just talking to the other six churches. He's talking to all the churches with an ear to hear. Let every church on the planet hear the command of Almighty Christ, wake up. Wake up, church. Wake up, Brent. Wake up, individuals. Nobody needs a sleepy Christian. What's desperately needed in the church today is believers, marriages, families, households, church families that are wide awake with Christ. Sardis was a wealthy city. There's a river run through, running through Sardis, and it was believed that it was filled with gold, that the river had gold floating in the water, and there was gold all in the, in the, in the riverbed beneath it. And, and in fact, the, the legend of King Midas, who everything he touched turned to gold, came out of Sardis. Because they, they said, yeah, this king bathed in the river, so everything he touched turned to gold. They loved their wealth. In AD 17... 
about, oh, 80 years, 78, 80 years before John is writing Revelation 3 to Sardis, there was an earthquake. It devastated the city of Sardis. But Rome and the emperor at the time, Jesus was about 17 years old, wanted Sardis to flourish. And so gold and silver and wealth of all sorts and kinds and workers and materials were all sent to Sardis from Rome to rebuild Sardis. And so Sardis was a nation, a, a city always in debt to Rome. And so they were always nodding and bowing to the emperor saying, thank you, thank you, thank you so very much for all the money you keep sending to us. They were proud of their military strength. They had a high rampart around their Acropolis. It had never been taken over by a full frontal attack from an army, but only twice had it been sacked by secret stealthy commando raids into the nighttime when everyone was sleeping. The only two times Sardis fell was by a sneak attack at night. Important to remember. Sardis was very proud, and the church in Sardis was very proud. They had become very complacent. They were not fighting against the Romans. They were agreeing with the Romans. They weren't fighting against the large Jewish population. They were agreeing with the Jewish population. They had essentially grown complacent. There was no conflict in the church because they had sold out already. They'd given up. They'd quit. It's much, much easier to go along to get along in Sardis. The Lord Jesus comes to Sardis in verses 1 and 2, and he says, And to the angel at the church at Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The overwhelming feeling we should have as we hear the Lord Jesus say this to Sardis is how gracious and kind it is that he's willing to talk to them at all. He didn't pass by, but comes in great grace and mercy to talk to them. And he's not passing by the dead today. How does the Holy Spirit touch Sardis? How does it work? What's it like for the Holy Spirit to come? And where where does he put his fingers? What's the touch point of the soul of this church at Sardis? In other words, how is the Holy Spirit by this passage going to touch your soul? Where is he going to let his finger drop on your soul right now today through this word? This is not just an ancient word. This is a living and active, powerful word that's touching my soul right now. How is it going to touch yours? It'll touch yours in three ways, each having to do with the word name. Name. The word name shows up actually four times in this short paragraph. It's the theme that draws this whole paragraph together. If you don't see how the word name is used, and and you'll need my help in a moment to see it, but you'll see it plainly. If you see how the word name is used, you see what the point of the passage is. If you don't see how name is used, then this feels like you're just kind of hovering over Revelation 3, 1 through 6, and never quite getting into it. Let's get into it. The first way the Holy Spirit awakens Sardis, this sleeping and near-dead church, is the Holy Spirit exposes where their name is dead and false, where they're hypocrites and where their name lies about them. I know your works, Jesus says to them. You have the reputation. Literally in Greek, that's the name. Put a note in your Bible or in your notebook. Name, right by the word reputation. It's the name others give you for what they see in you. 
I know your works, you have the name of being alive. Evidently, they heard the gospel, received it, became assembled as a church, and had a witness for Christ in Sardis. But they grew very bored of the gospel and ashamed of the Bible and, and uninterested in prayer. And, and no longer seeing the need to gather on the Lord's Day with God's people. And, and no longer caring what their spiritual gift was or how it might be useful. And no longer caring for anybody else to reach into their lives or to, to pray for them or to strengthen them or challenge or encourage them and use their spiritual gifts for their good. They just didn't see any need for that anymore. They grew past it. They had their pagan festivals they attended. They had their work uh, connections that satisfied them, and they had other standing in the community that was higher if they didn't keep talking about God and Jesus and Bible stuff all the time. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What does he mean by not found your works complete? He just means you were doing good things and you quit. You were doing good things to pursue the Lord, things His Spirit was empowering you to do, the normal, ordinary things of the Christian life, and you quit. I don't want to read my Bible anymore. I don't want to worship with God's people anymore. I don't want to use my spiritual gift anymore. I was hurt when I did it last time. I don't want to be hurt again. It's too much risk. I don't know if I trust those people. It's easier just to stay home. I'm better protected. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to be thought crazy because I think the earth is only uh, several thousand years old and was created in 140 some hours by the mighty power of the living God. I don't want to be persecuted because I think a man and woman ought to stay married for life. I don't want to be persecuted because I think that any other kind of sexuality outside of a man and a woman in the confines of covenant marriage is evil. I don't, I don't want to start fights with people over all that. I would just as soon keep all those difficult, thorny, complicated things in the closet. You need to wake up, church at Sardis, because you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You've grown ashamed of me. You don't share my faith and the gospel with others anymore. You don't send out those who have gone out for the sake of the name to share my faith with those of other cities and nations anymore. You're not disciples following me, nor are you making disciples who follow me. Your works are incomplete, the Lord says to Sardis. Wake up. Here the Lord commands a, a, an impossible command for a dead church. He commands, as it were, a corpse to get up, climb out of the grave, take off your grave clothes, and live again. No corpse can do it. It's impossible. But his word carries the power to effectually create exactly what he commands. You remember when Lazarus, Jesus' good friend, was dead in the tomb for four days? In John eleven forty three, 43, Jesus commands with all power and authority, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes up out of the grave, dead lives, and all of a sudden, breath in his lungs, he comes out and pulls off all his dead clothes, and he's given back to his sisters, Mary and Martha. And they celebrate, Lazarus was dead, and now he's been resuscitated to be alive. 
the power of Jesus' word, commanded and achieved Lazarus coming out of the grave. So it's very, very good he made sure to use Lazarus' name. If he would have just said, come out, everybody would have come back from the dead. Jesus comes to Sardis and he says, wake up. And by the power of his word, the dead Sardis lives. He says, wake up to you right now. He says, wake up to any in the hearing of my voice who've grown very bored and dull with the things of the Lord. And he says, my word will cause you to wake up. The first way that the Spirit touches our name is by showing where our life is out of step with who we are in Christ. This church was a believing church. These are believers who are backslidden and growing very dull and sleepy and complacent and uninterested with the things of the Lord. He doesn't pass by them as if they're a lost cause. He stops to talk with them, praise his name. And he says, wake up to them, which is exactly what they need to hear from him. And the power of his word awakens the dead. May it happen in your life right now if you find yourself sleepy before the Lord. May it happen in the lives of people and churches around this city and around the world who have fallen asleep. They've grown bored with the blood of Christ and bored with the gospel and bored with God's heaven and hell and the saving from his wrath and bored with the Bible and bored with every phrase that it teaches. And they have in fact said, isn't it so much easier just to keep those things inside the Bible and the Bible in the drawer and our mouths shut? The second way the Spirit touches using our name is He restores our name before God. If you say, yes, Lord, I I do feel there's a a cool deadliness that comes over me sometimes. I, I see deadliness coming over the spiritual connections that I may traffic in, and I see deadliness coming over my community or my city or churches around the world. I see the potential for an for a icy glacier to slowly, inch by inch, come sliding over the church of Jesus Christ and consume it with cold, dead unbelief. And I want, Lord, your word and your spirit like a blowtorch to come with blue flame and, and fire against the wall of that glacier and melt it into living water for me. What do I do? Here's the answer. Look at the way the Spirit touches. Look at the way the Spirit touches our name. Verse 3 and 4, remember then what you received and heard. Remember that gospel. The one you think you grew past and don't need anymore, remember that. Go back and recollect it and enjoy it and savor it again. Keep it. Live according to it. And where your life now is out of step with it, repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This isn't the second coming. This is Jesus coming in conviction and in discipline to his people to bring hardship into their life in order that they might repent. He's coming like the commandos in stealth that sacked the city they live in at night and were successful. He says, that's how I'm going to come. When you're sleeping. You want to sleep so bad? Stay in bed. That's when I'm going to come and make your life miserable until you wake up. When I was 14, I didn't want to go to church on Sunday. My dad thought I should go to church on Sunday. I didn't want to. So I would sleep in. I had all kinds of things I wanted to do on Saturday nights. It was a great time to do the stuff I wanted to do. 
I didn't want to go to church on Sunday. So to wake me up at seven, he would take a glass of water, walk up the stairs, and he would slowly dribble it on my forehead while I'm sleeping. I can still feel it. Just a wonderful way to help me get up and get ready for church. The Lord Jesus is saying, you stay asleep. I'm coming like a thief in the night with a glass of water. Remember, repent, and then he says, return to the remnant. Verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. (laughs) You still have a few names. Do you remember faithful so-and-so? Do you remember faithful so-and-so? Wouldn't you just love it when so-and-so prays for you? You know so-and-so reads her Bible. You know so-and-so will pray for you if she says she'll pray for you. You know so-and-so will lead you and speak truth to you if you talk to him about what's going on in your life. You still have a few names. Return to the remnant, Sardis. There's the grace I haven't taken away from you. All the people who are alive in me, I've kept them there so that you will look to their lives and return and join the remnant, the the small tiny group that turns away from all the blessings of Rome and all the wealth of Sardis and all the approval of the Jews. Turn away from all those things and go return to the remnant. They're right in front of your nose. I put them there and I keep them there. Because they haven't soiled their garments. They walk with me in white and they are worthy. You should know that this word worthy here is a precious word in Revelation. It's used many times in Revelation. All but one to refer to how much we should give worship to Christ. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. This word worthy always refers to Christ and his worth except here. This is the only place it doesn't. This refers to Christ's beloved ones, unstained and walking in white. Not never having been stained, but clean in their white because they have been forgiven by his worth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. It was his slaughter that cleanses these few names in Sardis. And it's the slaughter of the lamb that cleanses those who would rejoin the remnant. Just decide what group you're going to be in. You're going to get along and make it in the world. And you're going to love their values and live the life that they call you to live. And find yourself dead before the Lord. Or you're going to return to the remnant having remembered the gospel and repented of sin. And you're going to rejoin the remnant in white. The power of the Holy Spirit promises that he will do this. Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit comes and he will remind you. I I used to love thinking about the, the, the manifold perfections of God, but I don't anymore. I used to love to think about all the cross-references in my Bible and discover new things there, and I just don't anymore. I used to love sharing my faith. It was so invigorating and exciting, but I can't remember the last time I've done it. I used to love to spend significant seasons in prayer and attend prayer gatherings in the church, but I haven't been to one in so long. I used to Love the encouragement I'd get for using my spiritual gift, but I can't remember the last time I've ever used it. Wake up, dear one. 
remember, repent, and return to the remnant. Let the names of those that come to your mind be a draw to you to join them. That's the second reservoir, the second touch point where the Spirit pours Himself into us and says, this part of your soul, the name that's out of step with who you are, I'm going to identify that. I'm going to pour myself into that. And the, the new name, the restoration I give you as you remember, repent, and are restored, that's where I'm going to touch and pour myself into you again. And finally, there's a third way that name is used. It's the fixed an honored name that Jesus speaks about us to the Father in heaven. Look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. You see, we who come to the Lord in repentance by faith are given the same white garments that the remnant already has. That's how we know they didn't have them always. They received them as they conquered and came in faith. This is the new birth. These white garments are the righteousness that we have in Christ. Verse 5 goes on, And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Moses asked the Lord to blot his name out of the book of life. Insofar as the Lord might be pleased to allow the rest of Israel, those under Moses' charge, to be added into the book of life, Moses' name was never blotted out. None whose name is written from before the foundation of the world ever have their name blotted out. But the promise Jesus is holding out here is that there were books in the Jewish and in the Roman pagan societies where if you did not come to their pagan societies with white garments on, your name was blotted out. If you came bearing the name of Jesus Christ and saying, I'm washed in the blood, you were counted unclean by the pagans and they blotted your name out. Here, Jesus says, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. In fact, I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm going to say your name because you repented and returned and loved the gospel and I cleansed you with white garments and now I'm going to say your name with celebration before God the Father. I'm going to speak your name. How do I know? How do I know, Sardis, that you're not going to return again? How do I know I don't have to come back next year, year after and year after and keep telling you to wake up? How do I know that these white garments are not going to be soiled all over again? Here's how he knows. He's not going to blot our name out of the book of life because, praise his name, he has already blotted our sin out of our lives. Listen to the word of God. This will blow your mind. And you, Paul says to the Colossians, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling. It's the same word as blotting out. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I know that I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life because I've already blotted out your sins with my blood. Praise his name. Listen to Acts 3.19. Peter's preaching, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you even Jesus. Sins blotted out by Christ means 
we will never have our names blotted out of his book of life. By his own blood, he ensures that we are forgiven and secure. His certainty, doesn't this settle on you so deeply and sweetly? This is fresh for me this morning. My assurance of my salvation comes from his assurance of what happened at the cross. He is so sure that he successfully wiped my sins away on the cross that he says to me, I'm the Sardis, that your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. My assurance is rooted in his assurance. Praise his name. War memorials record names on walls. Sports halls of fame record names. The popular culture remembers the names of victims. Christ remembers your name and mine in heaven. In the conversation between the Father and the Son, they speak openly before the ears of all the angels, saying, This one I have redeemed. This one I have saved. This one is my chosen one. The Spirit exposes our lost name. That's one touch point. The Spirit grants us repentance and a new name. That's a second touch point. And the third is that the Spirit establishes a permanent and honored name for each of us who walk with Him. That's the reward held out to the Sardesian church and to us. What he's calling for in Sardis is revival. What I'm calling for in your heart and in this church and in mine is revival. The regular, ongoing, witnessing, preaching, teaching, singing, serving, loving one another witness that brings about the extraordinary blessings of God as he grants them. Wake up, church. Christ spoke to the fledgling church in China in 1976, and he came to them and he said, wake up. Chairman Mao Zedong died that year. His Marxist repressive regime was over, and there is thought to be among the 700 million Chinese at that time living in the Republic of China, as many as 1 million Christians, 1 million out of 700 million. Ha! In the 45 years since then, there is at most conservative number 135 million Christians worshiping in China right now. Most of them underground, not submitting to the compromises and false teaching of the state-run church. One missiologist I respect, who I read earlier this week, said by 2030, eight years from now, by 2030, China will have 247 million Christians within its borders. <laughs> Biggest Christian nation in the world. They're sending out 20,000 missionaries to other parts of China and the world every year. One pastor of a small church says he baptizes 300 people a year in his church. <laughs> Can you imagine if we baptized 300 people a year in this church? I have a friend who worked for GM and was placed in China, and he worshiped at a church for several years, a Chinese underground church who said baptisms were common every Sunday, not because there was an emotional plea, but because the leaders of the church kept constantly receiving the testimonies and having conversations with those who had made professions of faith, and they were preparing them so that every Sunday somebody was ready to be baptized. One day Christ came to China and he said, wake up. How gleeful must be that great company of witnesses looking on, including Hudson Taylor, 
Lottie Moon, Gladys Alward, John and Betty Stam, C.T. Studd, Eric Little, and thousands of others who gave their lives for the gospel in China. Because of their work, the Lord has granted the world's largest revival to continue in China to this very moment. I don't know if you know this, but Sardis as a city doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> that whole river of gold, happy time thing just didn't work out very well. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Not in this church, not in any church. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the revival that you give. Thank you for the first giving of life. You are life, and thank you for how you give it again and again and again. Thank you for reviving us over and over. Maybe you're reviving some in this room right now. Maybe you're reviving me. Maybe you're reviving some that are hearing by live stream, and we will see the fruits of it in days and weeks and months to come. And maybe you're doing 10,000 more things than I even know to ask for because of how powerful, how gracious, how generous you are not to walk past the dead, but to speak to the dead, that they would arise. Thank you so much for Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And now thank you for the privilege that we have to look back to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and say, it's you by your spirit. That's what makes this church good for anything. The best thing about this church is you and what we have of you. We don't want to do anything in this church that denies or has no need of your Holy Spirit. Shut down anything that we're doing that doesn't rely on your Holy Spirit. We want to do all that we do by full reliance upon you for your honor and glory that everyone who sees us would look right through us, right into your face. Take all the glory for yourself, I pray. Give us all the joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me, would you? Let's respond to the word by singing together.